So we've been working gently through Acts so far this term, following Luke's history of what Jesus continued to do in the world after his resurrection. As he poured out his spirit into his disciples, he empowered them, and he set them the task of being his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for the first three chapters, it goes swimmingly. We saw the Holy Spirit. He was clearly at work. There were miracles, there were huge numbers of converts, and a deeply attractive picture of this nascent church. And it's heady stuff, isn't it? It's exciting, and it's challenging, and it's overwhelmingly positive. And then in chapter 4, things seem to come thudding back down to ground. Remember, though, Luke is writing this as a history. It's not just a rosy fairy tale. So he wants his audience to have an accurate, reliable picture of Christian life. And he he doesn't airbrush out the hard bits. More than that, he's particularly writing to prepare his audience, to warn them of difficult times to come, to show them the reality of Christian life, make sure they know what to expect. Make sure as well that they understand why it happens. So he shows us what happens when the Holy Spirit gets to work. That's important. He says, yes, there are miracles. Yes, many come to faith. Yes, Christians will lead transformed, inspiring lives, but also importantly, he shows the backlash. There is opposition, and it's not plain sailing. So in chapters 4 through to 8, Luke outlines some of the types of opposition that witnesses of Christ can expect to run into. We get three rounds of increasingly violent persecution, Uh, from outside the church by the religious and political authorities. First it's Peter and John, then it's all the apostles in this passage, and then later on it's Stephen in the wider church. And sandwiched in between those, we get two other internal threats. First, there's the pretty distressing story from last week, the corruption and dishonesty, and then God's abrupt judgment of it. And next week we'll see the risk of internal squabbling, distraction from ministry when we get to chapter 6. But through it all, Luke's really clear. There's opposition, there are problems, but God remains sovereign. His purposes aren't thwarted. And so he shows us again and again that it's in this context of hard times that God grows his church. Luke tops and tails each section with lovely descriptions of the gospel community and reminders that many people are being added to their numbers. And again, we see in this context of opposition that Christ blesses his witnesses. So last week, that terrifying sudden judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is provoked by satanic influence, but It ends with godly fear spreading through the church in verse 11. And our passage today, it details pretty unpleasant persecution of believers. Flogging was not nice. But it ends with the apostles rejoicing. So what's our our central idea from this section? I, I think Luke is telling us about God's sovereignty. And I think he's telling us what that looks like in practice and what that will mean for us as we face difficulty in the world. Let's look at the rest of chapter 5 then. What what happens in here? Well, after the frightening bit about Ananias and Sapphira, we've got the consequence, godly fear spreads throughout the church. 
And Luke gives us another reminder that things are going well. It's not out of hand. Dramatic judgment gets matched by a period of dramatic signs and wonders. Great blessings in verses 12 to 16. The apostles who had argued in chapter 4 that they could not help but witness to God obediently. Keep going. And he faithfully pours out his spirit. So there are more and more healings, there are more and more conversions, and even most of the other Jews seem to see and acknowledge there is something special going on here. So in verse 13, we see the disciples are highly regarded, even if there's a slight wary separation. It's good times. But despite the popular respect and despite miracles, Luke shows opposition still crops up. So just like in chapter 4, it's the Sadducees again. The political and priestly ruling classes, they turn up and they rein the apostles in. Luke says they're filled with jealousy. To put some context on that, the Sadducees probably reckoned the Messianic era had started some time before. They certainly didn't believe in resurrection or afterlife. And their priestly and political status are strongly tied together when one's challenge sows the other. So you can see why they've got a beef with these disciples. These fishermen who come along and preach a heretical message of resurrection and new life and lay the blame for killing Messiah at their feet. It's not going to go down well. Virtually everything about the gospel speaks against them. And so it's not surprising, maybe, they want to tear it down. They arrest the apostles, and realistically, they probably have the intention of trying, convicting and killing them. Because you wouldn't need to be a genius to see how the enraged Sanhedrin is going to jump the next day. I think there's a point here that sometimes gets lost on us. I don't know if you find this, but when I read the New Testament... I find it hard not to set the Pharisees and the Sadducees up as pantomime bad dudes. And nowadays in Britain, we we live in such a different climate and we're so used to the answers, particularly if we've been living with Christian ideas for a while. We know these guys are in the wrong, so we we kind of fail to empathise with them. We think they just act this way because they're the bad guys. And so the story becomes slightly unreal. We miss a point. Their reaction is totally understandable. Look at what gets them really riled. Look at verse 28 and verse 30. Why do they want to silence the apostles? It's because the gospel makes their guilt plain. Makes it plain to them and to everyone else. And now... As then, the gospel is going to provoke opposition. Some of it will be violent, but for us, more often, it's likely to be quiet mockery and disdain. There are lots of reasons for that, but one is that we don't like it when God's light shines on our darkness like that. If we're honest, we, we know how uncomfortable that makes us. We've experienced it, haven't we? We see it in our hearts. It hurts to be convicted. And it hurts to have our sin brought to light, particularly if others see. 
It's shameful and it's painful. And it takes a miracle of grace to turn that hurt into repentance. If that miracle's not there, rejection, opposition to the gospel are natural consequences. God's gospel, his message of new life, glorious though it's shown itself to be already, provokes opposition inevitably. But Luke shows us more than that. He shows us that the Sadducees are not in control, thankfully. I I love the way here Luke just calmly chucks an angel into the story from left field. That's pretty amazing. If I were telling the story, I think I'd be tempted to make that my focus. But for Luke, there's something more remarkable going on. For all the Sadducees' outrage, for their guards and their political might, despite that, they're powerless. They just don't get to shut Christ's witness up. They don't get to squash this message of new life, of resurrection. Because God's in control. So we've got this guy Gamaliel, he sees it. He's the one voice of reason there. Now, we don't know all that much about him. We know he was a respected, fairly moderate Pharisee. and We know Saul studied under him. Christian tradition claims him as a believer. He seems to have remained fairly prominent as a, a respected Jew, so that feels maybe unlikely. We don't really know, though. But here he nails it. Look at verses 38 and 39. If their purpose is from God, you will not be able to stop them. The rest of Luke's history bears the truth of that out, doesn't it? There's nothing the authorities can do to limit the spread of the gospel. In fact, they just end up spreading it further. So they try to persecute the church in Jerusalem. They drive the gospel out to Judea and Samaria. They try to arrest Paul. And they end up sending the great evangelist to the international hub city and pushing the church further onwards. If this is from God, you will not be able to stop it. So, Luke shows us that God is sovereign over the growth of the church, but not just in the long-term kind of way. Let's be realistic. There's opposition, but don't worry, Jesus wins. This isn't just uh, the far-reaching sovereignty that ultimately things will work out. Look at verse 20. It's weird. God doesn't rescue his people from prison and send them to safety. He doesn't try and pull them out of danger. He's not firefighting. And the apostles don't rejoice because they end up free. Now, God's sovereignty is immediate. It's now. And so when his church faces hardship, that's the plan So here, God goes to all the trouble, sending in an angel, springing them from jail, and puts them right back in the firing line, doing exactly the thing that got them nicked in the first place. Not great (laughs) tactics, maybe, I, I don't know. But opposition and suffering here just don't seem to be the challenges that God's fighting against. They seem to be the purpose that he chooses for his witnesses. It's how he chooses to bless them. It's how he honours them and teaches them and grows them. Do you want that? Slightly uncomfortable. The apostles aren't rejoicing because they're free. They rejoice because they have been beaten and censured for the sake of Jesus' name. 
They've been made imitators of their Lord. They're allowed to share in his suffering and so in his glory. Throughout the New Testament you get the same picture. You see it in a fortnight, we'll look at Stephen. The same thing happens. You see it in Jesus talking to his disciples in John 15, for example. He says, uh, servants are not greater than their masters. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Well, you see it in the, the epistles. Paul refers to it in Philippians. He says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. The apostles rejoice because they see that. They saw firsthand how their Lord suffered. They saw his resulting glory. And they see that the same has been granted to them. So I think here Luke is saying God is sovereign and so Christ's witnesses will face opposition. And they can rejoice in it. They need not fear. What about us? Well, God is sovereign now as then. So in part we've got the same encouragement. No one can fight God's purposes. They'd end up fighting God. They don't have a chance. He's on our side. Just as God's angels stopped the Sadducees from silencing the apostles, our God's sovereign power will see that his message of new life is witnessed to. But of course that's probably not the thing that we struggle with here, is it? For most of us, God's sovereign ability to carry us through opposition becomes a bit of a moot point because we probably tend to shy away from opposition given half a chance anyway. I confess, I... I've got a great degree of hypocrisy here. It's one thing to see a message in text and affirm it in theory. In practice, not so confident. The reality is, unlike in 4 verse 20, I can help myself. I'm all too good at holding myself back. Honestly, I don't rejoice. Even at the prospect of light ribbing from my friends for speaking about Jesus or for being noticed as different. I can just about stomach living a a life which is distinct in small, moderate ways. I'll probably play it down if someone notices. And when there's an opportunity to speak openly about Christ, I know how to hold back. How about you? Why is it hard? Maybe it's because we're not under this kind of pressure the whole time. So we don't have to build up that habit of depending on God's sovereignty. Or or maybe it's about being someone who's past the first flush of enthusiasm of a new convert. Which, in in fairness, the apostles are kind of still in, aren't they? You can see how much your life hasn't changed. Sin still painfully omnipresent. So to speak of a transformative resurrection gospel, a little futile, or do you get that voice of cynicism? Oh, that, that person, they, they wouldn't be interested anyway. Why open myself up to trouble? It's not great, is it? So what do we do about it? Probably not a guilt trip. That's unlikely to change hearts. So I just want to point you at three encouragements here. Firstly, look where the apostles' witness comes from. 
in verses 29 to 32. It springs from their first-hand experience and understanding of salvation. They saw Messiah crucified. They saw him resurrected. They saw with great clarity what that meant for their lives. We've got the same. As Paul later wrote, Christ's love compels us to be ambassadors of his gospel. If, like me, you're conscious that your courage for evangelism is woefully inadequate, then remember and meditate on and chew over the things he has done for you. Think on heaven. Ponder the cross. Remember the love that we've been shown. I think when that is secure in our minds, it's a different game. It becomes hard not to bear witness because we are changed and we know it. We have new life, so we witness it. Secondly, look at what the apostles are asked to do in verse 20. They're not asked to do anything that they weren't doing already. They just kept using the gifts that they've been given, living as they would have anyway. If you were in church this morning, you'll have heard Dan pointing us into Ephesians, where we're told to stand firm. We're not asked to be action hero Christians or or clad up in the armour of God and running into battle and winning it single-handedly. That's not what it's about. We're called to stand our ground, armoured in the gospel. So, for most of us, obeying the command to bear witness to new life isn't about crazy street preaching like this. It's not about speaking up in temple courts. It's not about being the amazing evangelist who wins thousands of souls. It's not about going looking for trouble. Suffering for suffering's sake is, is pointless. It's not about picking fights. The apostles weren't out for trouble. The crowd knew that. That's why they respected them. That's why the crowd might have rioted if the guards had gone in heavy-handed. Now, for most of us, faithful witness is about living out relatively normal lives, but being distinct. Faithfully witnessing. Faithfully witnessing to God's grace. So we do our jobs as if for God. We study properly as if for God, and and so on. We stand our ground armoured in the gospel, not engaging in the self-destructive aspects of our culture, the the gossiping or the grumbling or the, the drinking or whatever it is in your workplace. And that's what piques people's curiosity. So when it gets noticed, it means being ready to give a reason for the hope we have. And when it gets mocked, it means quietly praising God because we know he's at work. We know he's touching some raw nerves. We know there is scope then for some change. Finally, third encouragement. Look at how the apostles react in verse 41. If you're a new believer, if you have this new life, 
God is on your side. And things are going according to plan. So when you do get mocked or excluded or treated badly, remember, this is his purpose. If God's spirit at work in you outrages the world, you are being made Christ-like. You're having the same effect your master did. It's been granted to us not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. Rejoice. It's one of God's methods of bringing us to full maturity in him. It's one of his methods for changing hearts around us. So pray that he would keep using it to good effect. God is sovereign and so his witnesses can face opposition. But rejoice.